Nuclear politics. What will it take to convince the world's governments, especially those of the nine nuclear weapons states, to embrace the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and move towards ridding themselves of their arsenals and their nuclear intent? It may seem impossible, a pipe dream, a funny fantasy embraced by former hippies and the politically naive. But then you hear from a politician, more than one actually, but this one a member of his national government who has the vision and strength of character to stand up to the naysayers with true vision. And he tells you... I think it's, it's this constant pressure from nations across the world standing together in behalf of their peoples, which will eventually build to the kind of pressure on the nuclear weapon states that will force them to be much more reasonable. One can only hope, and work like hell in the meantime. So when Scottish Member of Parliament Bill Kidd explains the hopeful vision that sustains his work and that of so many others, you begin to see that there may be a way out of that scary, awful, dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we continue our coverage of the United Nations Second Meeting of States Parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, with brief interviews with members of governments from the United States, Canada, Scotland, and Japan, as well as a summary of what we are facing, including nuclear power and the entire nuclear fuel chain, from Jackie Cabasso of Western States Legal Foundation. We'll also welcome back from sabbatical Linda Pence-Gunter, with the nuclear hot seat, hot story. And, of course, we'll have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than managed to break through the manufactured wall of pro-nuclear noise at the COP28 climate change conference in Dubai. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, December 12, 2023, And here is a continuation of our coverage of the UN Second Meeting of States Parties on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, as well as nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out with what can only be called international nuclear schizophrenia. In New York, at the five-day meeting at the UN of the Second Meeting of States Parties to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, a full frontal rejection of nuclearism was declared, and a challenge placed to the nuclear-armed world. Meanwhile, at COP28, the climate change conference in Dubai, the deeply embedded and highly propagandized lie that nuclear is somehow clean, green, and a savior for the climate crisis 
received unprecedented attention with nearly two dozen countries, including the United States, the United Kingdom, and United Arab Emirates, signing a declaration to triple nuclear energy by mid-century. And U.S. Energy Envoy John Kerry announced a nuclear fusion strategy as a source of quote-unquote clean energy. Here to untangle the story is Linda Pence-Gunter, returned from sabbatical with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. The nuclear power industry is very like Donald Trump, completely blind to its own fatally catastrophic flaws. Nothing exemplified this better than the declaration to triple nuclear energy capacity by 2050, made by 22 countries last week during the COP28 climate summit held in the oil-rich nation of the United Arab Emirates. Never mind that the nuclear industry has never and will never be able to deliver at this kind of pace. Pie in the sky is the dish du jour in Dubai. Appropriately, it was French President Emmanuel Macron who led the announcement. After all, Macron has been at the helm of what could arguably be described as the most gigantic industrial fiasco in nuclear power history, the failure of the French Evolutionary Power Reactor, or EPR, to materialise on time and on budget and then actually function anywhere in the world. But of course, the other pair of grubby hands all over this dubious declaration in Dubai belong to the United States, specifically to John Kerry, who, we are told, is our official climate envoy. Kerry, big buddies with COP28 advisor and former U.S. Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz, a regular nuclear power Dr. Strangelove, trumpeted at a forum prior to the COP that, quote, nuclear is 100% part of the solution and that it's clean energy. The plan to triple global nuclear capacity is patently absurd. And as Michael Schneider, lead author of the just-released 2023 World Nuclear Industry Status Report, called it impossible. The nuclear declaration was followed by all the usual trite, both in the headlines and from self-interested nuclear executives. Nuclear is the safest source of energy, said Pinocchio award-winning Westinghouse executive Patrick Fragman, who, unlike some of his colleagues, hasn't gone to jail for fraud yet. Kerry, a former investor in some of the world's biggest nuclear power and nuclear weapons manufacturers, then took the stage again to push fusion, which, he declared, has the potential to revolutionise our world. There is absolutely no chance that fusion, perpetually 30 years away and wildly expensive, will ever materialise in time to revolutionise the world or anything else, since there is no likelihood that fusion, should it actually succeed, will ever have any practicable application to electricity generation. Undeterred by this blinding reality, NPR dutifully ran a big rah-rah story about fusion on Morning Edition, even praising the nanosecond of energy spotted out last year by the National Ignition Facility, known as NIF, as, quote, a major milestone for fusion as an energy source, unquote, when it was nothing of the sort. The NIF fusion experiment is not about energy. It's all about nuclear weapons readiness. But back to Monsieur Macron, whose endorsement of the COP nuclear declaration followed a preposterous announcement by French nuclear operator EDF that they would build at least one large reactor a year during the 2030s. This from a country that has not yet even completed its first EPR on its own soil in Flamanville. 
In 2007, that single reactor was supposed to take five years to build and cost a little over 3 billion euros. Now the cost is well above 20 billion euros and the reactor, which has suffered numerous technical and safety setbacks, still isn't done. One reactor a year for a decade is never going to happen, but according to former NASA scientist and nuclear power evangelist James Hansen, it's not nearly enough anyway. Without any attempt to explain how this could actually happen, Hansen says we will need 115 new reactors a year until 2050. Talk about mad scientists. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story. We'll have links up to several articles that throw further light on this issue, including Carl Grossman's excellent write-up, Nuke at COP28 from Counterpunch. They'll all be on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 651. For a more clear-eyed look on exactly what's going on, the World Nuclear Industry Status Report 2023 has just been published, and that will also be linked on the website. Here in the U.S., Congressional leaders have stripped a measure from this year's defense policy bill that would have expanded compensation for victims of U.S. nuclear testing, drawing condemnation from lawmakers who had spearheaded the initiative and bitter disappointment from activists who hoped the blockbuster film Oppenheimer would bolster support for their efforts. The amendment would have expanded RICA, as it is called, to include downwinders in New Mexico, where the first nuclear test took place, as well as a wider swath of uranium miners and people living in Missouri who were exposed to waste from the Manhattan Project. The expansion would have also covered people in Montana, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and Guam. As it stands, only parts of Arizona, Nevada, and Utah now qualify for RECA. Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, who led the charge in favor of the expansion, said... This bill turns its back on the people of the United States in defense of the lobbyists and the suits and the corporate entities who are going to get paid. And Tina Cordova, co-founder of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, said, People all across the American West and Guam who were horribly harmed when our country went about its reckless testing of nuclear weapons are devastated to again be left without assistance. She went on to say, certain members of Congress care nothing about the people who have been dying for 78 years without assistance. Shame on them for taking this position. And make no mistake, we will not give up, and we will be back to build an even greater coalition to continue this fight. And with so much attention being focused on small modular nuclear reactors... Dave Kraft, the Executive Director of Nuclear Energy and Information Service, based in Chicago wrote an editorial that clearly analyzes the problems with the non-existent technology and why legislators should ignore this bright, shiny object when funding alternative energy. We'll link to it. In Japan, an alarming story as thousands of tons of dead sardines and mackerel washed ashore in Hakodate on Japan's northernmost main island of Hokkaido. A notice was posted on the town's website urging residents not to consume the fish. What might have caused this die-off? One Hakodate Fisheries Research Institute researcher floated the thoughts that the fish may have been chased by larger fish, becoming exhausted due to a lack of oxygen while moving in a densely packed school and were washed up by the waves. The fish also may have suddenly entered cold waters during their migration. 
Nowhere in the article was the F word mentioned, Fukushima. So I contacted UK-based marine biologist and regular source for nuclear hot seat, Tim Deere-Jones, about whether the radioactive tritium-contaminated water release from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean could have been a factor. Deere-Jones said that in the Fukushima coastal region, there are two major currents of water, the Oyashia, which is a strong southward-flowing current, and the Kuroshiwa, which trends east to northeast away from the Japanese coast and out into the ocean as the North Pacific Drift Current. But both these currents meander, and they form large eddies or gyres which spin away from the main path. Southerly or northerly penetration of either current is not fixed, and eddy formation varies from year to year. What does that mean? It is possible that the radioactive tritium-contaminated water release from Fukushima could be a factor in this fish die-off. More research is definitely needed. Even as Rafael Grossi, Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, spoke at COP28 on the intention to triple nuclear power output by 2025, in Ukraine, the Zaporizhia nuclear plant is operating with only one off-site power line, leaving it highly vulnerable, according to Grossi's own organization, the IAEA. Repairs to the backup power line won't be completed until early next week, and the facility was shelled 78 times in a single night. Even Grossi himself has said, quote, a whole host of dangers, end quote, exist at Ukraine's nuclear power plants. If they're all so vulnerable, why build more? In France, the head of the EDF, the French state-owned utility, announced that it aims to build at least one large reactor a year during the 2030s. EDF CEO Luc Remont, speaking at the World Nuclear Exhibition in Paris on November 28th, said, We are counting on an accelerated rate of construction capacity for large reactors to build on what we have today. That is to say, one or two per decade, and gradually increase to one or even 1.5 per year. This from the company that started the process of building the reactors at Hinkley Point C in the UK in 2005, promised them by Christmas 2017, and they are still not completed. The original price estimate of $18 billion has now soared to approximately $40 billion with no end in sight. And we are supposed to trust that they will be building one to one and a half nuclear reactors per year? As the lyric at the beginning of this show states, what have those boys been drinking? In the UK, Sellafield, Europe's most hazardous nuclear site, has a worsening leak from a huge silo of radioactive waste that could pose a risk to the public, this according to The Guardian. Concerns over safety at the crumbling building, as well as cracks in a reservoir of toxic sludge, have caused diplomatic tensions with countries including the U.S., Norway, and Ireland, which fears Sellafield has failed to get a grip on the problems. The leak of radioactive liquid is likely to continue to 2050, and cracks have also developed in the concrete and asphalt skin covering the huge pond containing decades of nuclear sludge. There's also a podcast which we will link to on Alison McDermott's courageous whistleblower journey at Sellafield Nuclear Site. 
McDermott was an equality consultant at Sellafield and was sacked in 2018 after raising concerns about Sellafield's culture of sexual harassment and warned that the climate heightens the risk of not just accidents and mistakes, but also terrorism and sabotage. Calling the HR department's policy that of bullying, breaking, and bribing employees who raise safety concerns. This podcast will be linked on our website as well. And now... Nuclear Hot Seed Nuclear Hot Seed Nuclear Hot Seed None that's out of week World Nuclear News, the propaganda arm of the World Nuclear Association, is regularly a source of great numbnuts of the week, but this one outdoes them all. While touting the oft-questioned safety of their technology, they ask the crucially important question, why can't nuclear reactors look beautiful too? And they cite Dutch architect and designer Eric van Egerot, who says that part of the way to continue to build public support for nuclear energy is to make nuclear power plants look good, to make people feel good when they see them. Nuclear delusion and mental illness does run deep. And that's why Eric von Egerot and the doofuses who promote him, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We will continue with our special featured interviews in just a moment. But first... Between last week's full-length special on the second meeting of states' parties on the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons at the U.N., and this week's follow-up with even more information and interviews, you're hearing why it is important that you listen to Nuclear Hot Seat for stories like these that are crucial to our growing movement but ignored or given scant or even condescending coverage by mainstream media. Nuclear weapons carry with them the unavoidable threat of omnicide, That's the total extinction of the human species as a result of human action. Human extinction through nuclear warfare and its horrific aftermath. And other than perhaps cockroaches, not much else is going to continue to be alive either. Pretty big story, don't you think? But no one else was there covering it step by step at the United Nations. No other media organization cared enough to pay attention to what was happening and cover the real story that of campaigners from around the world coming together to share thought, voice, heart, hope, and plan action to keep this world from destroying itself and all other life as well. Only Nuclear Hot Seat stayed the course, with this program and more to come, to bear witness, craft reports, and give you a seat at this vitally important table. But we, I, can't keep doing this work without your help. The trip did take a big financial bite out of us, and we need your help to get back on track. What better time to do it? It's the holidays, just a little bit past Giving Tuesday, and hey, we are a nonprofit, so it's all tax deductible. Please do what you can to support Nuclear Hot Seat's work by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on the red Donate button. Or if you prefer Zelle, send a payment to info at NuclearHotSeat.com whatever you can do to help. I am deeply grateful for your support and for this opportunity to continue to serve you with nuclear information from a different perspective. Now, we continue with Nuclear Hot Seat's special report 
on the second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, held at the United Nations in New York from November 27 to December 1, 2023. There were multiple tracks of meetings taking place inside and outside the UN building, often simultaneously. The private meetings of the UN states' parties to the treaty were off-limits to me, even with my UN media credentials. And some were difficult to get to, such as many events put together by the campaigners, especially the young ones. We'll have a picture up from their energetic demonstration march, and know that I still regret missing the session they held on TikTok for hashtag nuclear disarmament. Meanwhile, an art exhibit graced the UN walls with 30 posters, vividly expressing anti-nuclear sentiments, and I will post some of those for you to see. And there were also information booths in the hallways, though most were visited only by those of us who were already in sync with their messaging. The attendees, no matter their age, affiliation, country of origin, were all well aware of the issues they face, the pushback from the nuclear industry and government, the difficulty and challenge of dismantling the nuclear juggernaut that threatens to swallow and possibly destroy our world. To reground us as to the current state of affairs, I talked with Jackie Cabasso. She is the executive director of the Western States Legal Foundation, and she gave us a rundown on the situation we're in across the entire nuclear fuel chain. Note that we spoke on Wednesday, November 29, when the news she shared was hot off the presses. I'm talking with Jackie Cabasso of the Western States Legal Foundation, who's just given an incredible, powerful presentation here at the second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. We'll be talking about that in the future. However, Jackie, you just dropped kind of an information bomb on me. Could you share what you just said? Sure. A few days ago, the Huffington Post reported that the Biden administration in collaboration with the French government and at least 10 other governments are going into the COP28 meeting, the International Climate Change Summit that's happening in Dubai starting tomorrow or the next day, that they're going in there with a pledge to triple the production of commercial nuclear energy by 2050 as a solution to climate change, to global warming. This is insane. I mean, where to begin? Tripling uranium mining and all of the effects that people here, victims, have been talking about of cancers and other radiation-related illnesses, multi-generational on indigenous people's lands for the most part. I mean, that's just the beginning of it. It is true that nuclear power production does not generate greenhouse gases, but building nuclear power plants does because of all the concrete involved. So there would be a huge spike in production of greenhouse gases. Nuclear power, of course, is incredibly expensive. It takes 20 or 30 years to build a plant. There will always be routine releases of radiation and other toxics. There will always be the possibility and probability of catastrophic accidents like Chernobyl, like Fukushima. There will always be the intractable problem of what to do with the spent nuclear fuel, which there is no solution to now. So we need more of it. Yeah, right. And then there's always the possibility of nuclear weapons proliferation by using 
either you're diverting uranium going in or processing spent fuel going out to make nuclear weapons. This is, and also it's incredibly undemocratic and centralized. Unfortunately, a lot of young, particularly climate change activists, don't know about nuclear power, and they believe that nuclear power is a solution to climate change. But the analogy I like to make is with factory farming. Would you support factory farming, which is incredibly centralized, capital-intensive, inhumane, and creates its own greenhouse gases? Would you support that? Nuclear power is like that in in the energy field. Instead of decentralized, non-greenhouse gas-producing, non-fossil fuel, of course, forms of energy. So I'm very concerned that this seems to be moving ahead as part of this so-called global nuclear power renaissance. Okay, even here at the meeting of states' parties of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, many, many states in Africa and other developing countries are insisting on their right, an inalienable right to nuclear technology, which they have under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, but they've grandfathered that into the TPNW. And this is just absolutely the wrong way to go. You would think, listening to some of these governments who are advocating for the global elimination of nuclear weapons, that nuclear power, peaceful nuclear technology, is the solution to all of the world's problems, agriculture, health, medicine, etc., etc. So we have a huge job to do to educate people and their governments about the realities of the whole nuclear chain. And one of the ways to do that, I think, is to get the testimonies of the people who have been directly impacted by uranium mining and nuclear testing, although that's not as directly related to climate change, who are largely indigenous people in Australia, in the United States, and all over the world, who are suffering multi-generational, horrific health impacts as a result of uranium mining. And certainly more uranium mining is not the solution to this problem. So somehow we need to bring that information into the climate change movement. And in that way, I think we really can join forces to become a much bigger movement that is working to mitigate existential threats from nuclear weapons and climate change, but also to truly promote and lead the way to a sustainable energy future without fossil fuels, without nuclear energy. Jackie Cabasso, Executive Director, Western States Legal Foundation. Politics and politicians are at the center of the battles over the TPNW and each country's position on it. Especially hard-pressed are those countries that have nuclear weapons or receive massive support from nuclear weapons states. But as difficult as the challenges are that we face, we are fortunate to have the support of elected officials at all levels from around the world. I managed to speak with several of the government officials who came to the UN to make their positions known and speak about the issues that face their countries regarding the passage of the treaty. Most notable, at least to me, was the fact that for the first time, a member of the U.S. Congress was in attendance. Representative Jim McGovern of Massachusetts has shown himself to be knowledgeable about the dangers of nuclear issues, and we've cited him on numerous occasions on this show. 
so it was a pleasure and an honor to finally meet him and have a chance to talk, albeit briefly, about the importance of the treaty and what it would mean to the United States. I'm talking with Representative Jim McGovern of Massachusetts, who is the only representative of Congress at this meeting at the United Nations, the second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Why you? What brought you here? Because I, I think this is, you know, the moral issue of our time. I think this is, this is an issue about whether our planet survives. If you care about the environment, you should care about this issue. If you care about social justice, you should care about this issue. Because we're spending so much of our treasure on modernizing and rebuilding and building new nuclear weapons. We have tens of millions of people in the United States of America that are hungry. I mean, why aren't we feeding them? You know, the world, uh, hunger is a problem around the world. Why aren't we redirecting those monies to solving a, a problem like that? And so we are slowly but surely building support in Congress for the resolution to abolish nuclear weapons. We have a lot more to do. We are here to build a movement, not just in the United States, but around the world. And after today, I feel that we are on our way. It's not going to happen overnight, but we have to be persistent. This is the right thing to do. You know, and the reason why we need to get more grassroots engagement is because members of Congress and members of parliaments don't always do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. They do it because it's in their political interest. They feel the political pressure. And so we need to build that political pressure. This is about saving the world. You mentioned we when you were talking about Congress. Are there others who have joined with you in this belief and in pushing this forward? Yeah, I mean, we have close to 50 co-sponsors already on, the, on, the, on this bill. I think a lot more will join us, hopefully in the weeks and months to come. You know, I wish I wasn't the only member of Congress here. Are you the first member of Congress who has come to one of these meetings? Maybe. I think I may, I may be, which is, I feel ashamed of that fact, quite frankly, because, you know, if this is not an important issue, I don't know what the hell is. We have world leaders right now recklessly using the phrase nuclear war as if it was like inevitable as if it was like, what's gonna happen next? That should scare everybody. And it's great to be here with the mayor of Des Moines because this is not just about, uh, it's not just a fight in Congress, it's a fight at the local level too. And so that we have mayors that are engaged in this gives me hope that we're gonna get to where we need to get to. You mentioned a bill. I take it this is in Congress. Right. What is that bill? Explain what it is and what it's supposed to do. So I have a bill, it's uh, HRES 77, to endorse the treaty to ban nuclear weapons. And so we are slowly but surely building support. But it's important that the United States, a nuclear power, take some leadership on this issue. Nobody here is talking about unilateral disarmament or any of that. kind. Of, we're talking about the whole world doing this, right? And so all these excuses for people not to get on are just that, excuses. I get it. You know, a lot of members of Congress get a lot of money from defense contractors and people who make parts and components and build these nuclear warheads. You know, I get that. But you know what's more powerful than money and defense contractors? Money is people power. And that's what this whole gathering today was about. People from the United States, people from around the world who want to make sure there's a future for their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, and beyond. And that's why I'm here. Representative Jim McGovern of Massachusetts, the first and, to date, only member of the U.S. Congress to attend meetings on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. He referenced other supporters, and you can watch a brief video featuring some of them, where these members of the U.S. Congress call for the abolition of nuclear weapons. It's up on the website, 
NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 651. An unexpected U.S. government official I met at the U.N. was Frank County, mayor of Des Moines, Iowa. What's a mayor from the middle of the country doing at an international meeting on nuclear weapons at the U.N.? More than you might expect. Note that this interview took place on November 28, two days before the COP28 U.N. climate conference in Dubai was scheduled to start. Frank County. I'm here as the United States Vice President for the World Mayors for Peace. You're from where? Des Moines, Iowa, USA. And how did you become involved, so involved, with nuclear issues in Des Moines? We have a big peace movement in in our city, and I've worked a long time with those individuals. And when I became mayor 20 years ago, I started working with those individuals. And when I found Mayors for Peace at the U.S. Conference of Mayors, I immediately joined. And, uh, you know, occasionally we have to be careful what we say. And somebody listened to what I had to say and said, oh, let's uh, let's have him be this. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that. We uh, have worked really hard with mayors from across the country. We put forward resolutions in front of the U.S. Conference of Mayors regarding peace and the prohibition of nuclear weapons and to redirect nuclear weapon dollars and money to local governments where people live, work, and hope to prosper and dream to have families or have a business and not only now but into the far distant future for many generations. And we have to do that, and it's all foundational. And we, war is not an answer. We have to stay away from war. We have to drive our whole country and the world to understand what happens at the local level and at local government. We solve problems day to day for people. We don't get into those differences of opinion at the heads of state level. We are problem solvers. We try to change people's lives and and make a better world for them. And uh, I think that as you talk to mayors, we're all in that. What have you accomplished that you're most proud of in terms of the work that you have done with the mayors to promote peace, to come up with these resolutions? Is there one thing you can point to and say, that was a good one, that one landed? I feel like that every year. We keep moving ahead and, you know, for 18 years we have done these resolutions and we've gotten them accepted. And some people say, well, you'll never get a partisan group. Well, we function in a nonpartisan fashion. We serve all of our citizens, whether they wear blue shirts or red shirts or green shirts or no shirts. Somebody calls with a problem, we try to do it. And this is a huge problem. Peace is something that we need in our country, in North America, in the world. And I'm I'm proud to have been the person for the last, I don't know, 15 plus years that has presented that resolution and uh, has been able to push it forward and get it accepted most of the time unanimously by the conference. But I also uh, work on similar issues regarding climate. And so... It's interesting how, as we talk to the science, how climate and nuclear weapons are really can be related because some of the scientists say nuclear war can never happen because that's the end. 15 to 20 
or 25 of them exploded with the power that they have today, which is so much more powerful than Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they say, that's the end. Game over. We can't let that happen. And we have to educate the world. And I know the young people understand it. We need to educate them. I'm going to uh, Dubai tomorrow to um, go to the global climate. I am the global president of the local government advisory to the UN, ICLE, Cities for Sustainability. And so we're going to go there and we're pushing a multi-level action from heads of state to local government to work together because, again, we are the people that suffer the actions or inactions and the consequences of extreme events that happen in climate, whether it's heat, whether it's drought, whether it's hurricanes, whether it's a wide variety of things. I mean, in Des Moines, Iowa, there we are in the middle of the country, June 30th, 2018, we got 10 inches of rain in four hours. Whoever thought that could happen in the middle of the United States, far away from the oceans, far away from huge bodies of water. We have rivers, but this is a climate thing that we had never seen. Four or five years ago, I had never heard of a term called a derecho. Well, it's an inland hurricane. And we have seen wind speeds straight line 30, 40 miles wide sweep across our state in Iowa and through Des Moines with wind speeds 130, 140 miles an hour. Devastates not only buildings and danger people, but devastates trees and whatever. I mean, we hauled away nearly 10,000 truckloads of tree debris after that kind of, a, of an event. So it's all of us, again, working together. And I think our local voice, we have to speak loud and speak off, whether it's about peace or whether it's about climate. We're the ones that are going to be the implementers of the solutions. Let's plan together. Let's work together. Let's make something good happen. And if a mayor or someone connected with a mayor or just a citizen who wants to get to a mayor would like to contact you to get more information, where can they go? They had a call Des Moines City Hall. <laughs> or they could call the U.S. Conference of Mayors to find out who maybe their closest members of that group are. And then maybe also through the Conference of Mayors, get a hold of Mayors for Peace. Because we need more mayors to be working on that as well. Frank Coney, mayor of Des Moines, Iowa, and so much more. I was honored to be able to speak with the mayor of Hiroshima, Kazumi Matsui, who spoke through an interpreter. How do you believe that these meetings at the UN on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons are actually helping us move forward towards that prohibition? We feel that this is, this treaty is a very important tool to um, um, make progress towards the ideal world for the humanity, uh, the world without nuclear weapon. Uh, the the step might be slow, but we have to um, we have to make a steady um, step moving forward. And this tool, we should really uh, use uh, the treaty as a, a tool to push forward. What do you think it will take to get Japan to sign on to the treaty? 
the uh, Japanese government's stance is that the currently the uh, nuclear armed um, the states um, uh, in, are um, uh, tackling the, uh, the Article 6 of NPT, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And they are supposed to be working on the nuclear disarmament and then uh, non-proliferation. So this is the first task for the nuclear armed countries as um, and then that is the first step to uh, secure the uh, the global security um, so um, that is the first one and uh, this nuclear ban treaty should come after that so that is a one theory and uh, we would like to really see the article 6 to be really upheld by the armed um, the, the nuclear armed treaty, and then that is the urgent, um, at most urgent task for those countries. Arigato. Hiroshima Mayor Kazumi Matsui. Government representatives can make a difference at all different levels. Here's Representative Lindsay Sabadosa from Massachusetts. She's a state representative, but one who knows how the personal is also the political, and the international is really local. I'm talking now with Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, who is from Massachusetts and is here for what purpose? Why are you here? Well, I was invited by constituents to attend this meeting. Even though I don't represent Massachusetts in the federal government, I file a lot of legislation on the state level around stopping the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And so it felt important to be here to hear this exchange of ideas, to sort of understand from parliamentarians around the world what the situation and conversations are like in their countries or in their governments. And I found it to be very useful, quite honestly. Are you the only state representative you know who is doing this kind of work, or are there others, and are you in touch? I'm sure that there are others, and we certainly are um, in touch with other legislators who are trying to do this type of work. What you can do on the state level, of course, is a little bit more limited. However, we've been able to pass legislation, for example, to prohibit on a municipal level contracting with individual companies that manufacture, maintain, or otherwise engage in the nuclear industry. So that it was, it was an important win of different communities taking a stand. We are also trying to create a commission in Massachusetts that would look at the state's involvement in the nuclear weapon industry to try to understand if there are ways that we can disengage. One of the key messages we heard today was really how we need to connect the issue of nuclear weapons with the environmental crisis that we're facing. We really should be putting our resources into addressing the right crisis, and that's not war, it's, it's the environmental crisis. So the commission will try to understand how we as a state can take steps forward, um, even if the federal government doesn't quite want to do that yet. So coming and listening to these conversations really, I think, lights a little bit of fire, makes you more committed to the work when you go home and to bringing in other legislators. And what are you aiming for politically? What level? I'm very happy where I am. I think that that is the perfect level. I really have a lot of admiration for people who work in the municipal government, but I think state level is the sweet spot where you can influence policy, but you still have a very tangible connection to your constituents. Representative Lindsay Sabadosa of Massachusetts. Official government representatives proved difficult to find and talk to, as so many of their sessions were not available to the public or even the press. 
but I did manage to speak with two members of their country's parliaments. Bill Kidd is a member of Scottish Parliament, and he minced no words at the difficult situation his country is in regarding nuclear weapons and passing the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. I'm Bill Kidd, member of the Scottish Parliament, and I'm here for the Parliamentarians Conference, which will be taking place here on Monday, which is today, obviously. Has Scotland signed yet? Scotland cannot sign at the moment because we are not as yet an independent country, but when we are, um, it's already been a commitment of the Scottish Government that we will be signatories. Yeah. What is it going to take to put the pressure on the UK to actually sign on this? Do you think that that's something that is feasible? Uh, it won't be feasible unless the United States sign it, um, because the UK wouldn't take that on themselves. However, I think it's, it's this constant pressure from nations across the world standing together on behalf of their peoples, which will eventually build to the kind of pressure on the nuclear weapon states that will force them to be much more reasonable. It sounds like you hold out some hope. I always hold out hope because if you didn't, then there wouldn't be any point in being here. I believe, not just hopeful, but I believe that we will achieve this. I don't want it to take forever so because we don't have that time, as has been said uh, but many times already today. One accident could lead to who knows what, in which case it will be beyond, um, beyond any of us. But that's why we have to stand together and work for it now. Bill Kidd, Member of Scottish Parliament. I also had the opportunity to speak with Canadian Member of Parliament Heather McPherson about the position of the U.S. neighbour to the north. Ours is not the only proximity they have to nuclear dangers. Tell me your name. Heather McPherson. What is your position in Canada? So I am a member of parliament for Edmonton Strathcona. I'm also the foreign affairs critic for the new Democratic Party of Canada. What is your purpose for being here at the second meeting of states parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons? As a new Democrat, we're probably the, the more progressive left-wing party of the Canadian Parliament. And we've been, you know, members of our party have been part of the nuclear disarmament discussion since very early on, very early days. So when I was elected, I knew that this was going to be something I was working on. This is something I've been interested in, you know, my entire life, that this is something that, that we need to do. And so as a parliamentarian, I just feel like I have this opportunity, this platform, this ability to raise the issue of nuclear disarmament in ways that I maybe didn't have before I was elected. And I, I feel an obligation to use that voice, that position, to raise the issues that aren't being, aren't being raised effectively in the Canadian Parliament right now. What is the position of Canada as regards nuclear weapons? It's a little embarrassing where Canada is at, actually, to be honest. We have a government that is in power that ran before they were elected on a position of supporting nuclear disarmament. Obviously, Canada's long history of disarmament. You know, the Ottawa Treaty is something that's for landmines, but it is, it is called the Ottawa Treaty because it was developed in Canada. It was led by Canada. We've done an awful lot of work on cluster munitions and whatnot, but, but what, we're, what we're seeing right now is a backsliding on all of that disarmament work that Canada should be doing. We don't have an observation delegation at the TPNW this week. We did not send anyone to Vienna. Repeatedly I've asked our government why that's the case, why we wouldn't send an observation delegation. You know that Norway, Germany, Belgium, Iceland, you know, other, other NATO countries have sent a delegation. I think our government is just hoping that Canadians aren't paying attention. 
um, and that they can that they can slide under without doing the work that needs to be done. We're also seeing some backsliding in terms of landmines. You know, we found out recently that Canada is sending detonators to Kazakhstan that are ending up in Russian landmines. We're an ally, of course, of Ukraine, and and they're spending millions of dollars to demine southeast Ukraine. At the same time, we're we're now realizing that the detonators are are going to Russia to arm Putin and the Russian Federation. It's really, really disturbing and, and unfortunate. What do you hope to accomplish as a result of being here and participating? Well, you know, it's interesting. Yesterday, the Canadian delegation, there are four parliamentarians here from Canada, and none of us are part of the governing party, and we are not the official delegation. We are here on our own. And yesterday, we met with our ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, and we raised this issue with him, and we made it very clear that Canada should be embarrassed, that we are no longer playing that meaningful role that Canada should be playing as conveners, as as champions for peacekeeping, for disarmament, for, for world peace. And we made that very clear to him, I think, yesterday. But my goal here is to, to learn and then to go back to the Parliament of Canada, share what I've learned with my colleagues and push the Canadian government, make it more and more uncomfortable for them to not engage in these conversations. You know, as an opposition member, my job is always to push the government. But but on this issue, Canada is absent from conversations that they absolutely should be part of. And so I'm, I'm going to be using my voice to, to raise that in the House, to raise that in committees and making sure that the government feels increasingly uncomfortable with the position they've taken. One other topic, which is a little to the side, but actually not really, and that is the issue of uranium mining and the other end, waste storage, which is being pushed through, certainly in northern Saskatchewan. I have some connections there in the Denisaline people. They're telling me that it is being forced forward. They are having no say in the matter. They try and they are shut down, ignored not allowed to have a voice in the process. Do you have any familiarity with this? And if so, what is it? Well, I mean, realistically, Canada will often use the excuse, the Canadian government will use the excuse that we're not a nuclear state. We don't have nuclear weapons. We don't need to be part of these conversations. Of course, that's nonsense. We are NATO. We are an ally of the United States. We have a a very big stake in this. But also because so much of the uranium comes from Canada, because we are doing this, we are a nuclear state. You know, we are producing the uranium that is being used. So we we should be considering ourselves a, a nuclear state and be acting accordingly for for that. In terms of, of how it's happening in Canada right now, it's disgusting. You know, we are not living up to our obligations. We have a legal framework that aligns with UNDRIP, with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. We are not adhering to that with the way that we are mining and we are extracting uranium. We are not getting prior and informed consent from communities. We are not working with impacted communities on this. So Canada really does does need to place itself more centrally in the conversation and be more responsible, I think, with regards to a whole range of things with regards to disarmament. But the uranium is, is one of those key issues that deeply impacts and directly impacts Canada. And what will it take to focus enough attention and enough pressure on the Canadian government to shift off of their non-involvement at this time and move forward? You know what? They have to know that there's a price to be paid. 
They have to understand that there is electoral price to be paid. That requires me to be doing my job as a parliamentarian, civil society to be doing their job, to be raising this issue. And, you know, young people across the country and, and people that are interested in nuclear disarmament across Canada have to start raising their voices even more. You know, we had a conference in Ottawa with young people just a week ago, folks that came together to talk about nuclear disarmament. It was intergenerational. We had the youngest participant was one and the oldest was 95. It was fantastic. But it's those voices that we need people to start. We need people to raise that. Sometimes Canadians forget the role that we play in the world. We forget our location. You know, Russia's our next door neighbor. Russia's a nuclear site. The U.S. right below us, you know, we would be deeply impacted and we need to recognize that and we need to, to have civil society Canadians grassroots efforts be so loud so that the government can no longer ignore Canadians. Member of Parliament McPherson, thank you so much for the education, for your passion. It's great knowing that you're there and I'm sure you will be for many more years because how could they get rid of you when you're this good? And thank you so much for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. That was Heather McPherson, a member of the Canadian Parliament. The Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons has other supporters, representing international as well as local interests. Jay Coughlin, Executive Director of Nuclear Watch New Mexico, and no stranger to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners, fills us in on another powerful area of support, with both local and planetary implications. Talking with Jay Coglin of Nuclear Watch New Mexico. Jay, what was it you were just telling us in the room? It's very interesting that the Archbishop of Santa Fe has taken up the cause of nuclear disarmament and I would say has passionately taken up the cause. But it's remarkable that he's doing it because more money is spent on nuclear weapons in his diocese than any other diocese in the USA. And that is because in addition to his archdiocese being the birthplace of nuclear weapons, it still has the two original nuclear weapons laboratories, Los Alamos and Sandia. Uh, so together, there's something on the order of $7 billion right there spent every year in the state of New Mexico in his archdiocese on nuclear weapons. Now, I certainly can't speak for him, but I, I know that he's following uh, the example of his boss, Pope Francis, who has explicitly declared that even just the possession of nuclear weapons is deeply immoral. And do you have any further involvement with this cause, with these people? Well, I, of course, you know, this is my day job. <laughs> this, this is what I do for a so-called living, <laughs> just trying to uh, eradicate nuclear weapons from the world. I'll add, I'm not a pacifist, and there can be just war, but there can be nothing just about an indiscriminate killer. That's what nuclear weapons are. We just can't have them. I observe that, you know, former Defense uh, Secretary Robert McNamara, he made a rather famous quote that we survived the Cuban Missile Crisis only by luck. And it's clear that luck is not a sustainable strategy, arguably, and, and the Archbishop agrees with this, arguably this second nuclear arms race that we're in now is even more dangerous than the first. And that's because 
we have multiple nuclear actors. We have artificial intelligence. We have new cyber threats, new hypersonic delivery vehicles. So we were lucky last time. It's an open question whether we'll be so lucky again. That was Jay Coughlin of Nuclear Watch New Mexico, letting us know about the recent statements and stance on behalf of the TPNW by John C. Wester, Archbishop of Santa Fe. We'll have a link up to Archbishop Wester's full statement on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 651. We will have more on the second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons in future episodes of Nuclear Hot Seat. But for now, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 11, 2023. If you haven't done so already, right now would be a great time for you to sign up to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week. We make it really easy. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com. There's a big yellow box that will pop up if you put in your name and your email address. You will get one counted one email per week that has a link to the show and some of the information about what's included in that episode. We don't spam you. We don't sell it. We don't give it away. We just stay in touch so that you can stay in touch with what's happening in the nuclear world. If you prefer, you can also access the show on any of the platforms where you get and listen to your podcasts. Either way, you will not run the risk of missing the chance to listen to a single episode. Now, we like your participation here, so you're up close and personal with the stories in your area. So if you see something, say something. If you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. And anything is a help. We always appreciate and are deeply grateful for your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libiha Levy, Nuclear Hot Seat, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as you give proper attribution. At minimum, the name of the program and our website. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat reminding you that as UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said, nuclear weapons offer false promises of security and deterrence while guaranteeing only destruction, death, and endless brinksmanship. Eliminating nuclear weapons would be the greatest gift we could bestow on future generations. There you have it. You've just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.